Hello, and welcome to the Asta La Visa Baby podcast, a deep dive into U.S. immigration law and its relationship to fictitious characters in television and film. My name is Shai Diane. I am an immigration attorney with Gibney, Anthony, and Flaherty, and I'm based in Los Angeles, California. And joining me today, as he does for every episode, he's also an immigration attorney. He's also with Gibney, Anthony, and Flaherty, but he's based in New York, and fear does not exist in his dojo. It's Mr. Roger Potts. <laughs> no, it does not, Shy. Rod, how are Pain you today? Does not exist in my dojo. I'm, I'm doing. I'm doing well, Shy. How are you today? I'm so good today. I'm. I'm looking forward to talking about a, a real treat of a movie. And I, I wanted to ask you, growing up, did you ever take karate? So I took. I think a couple. There were a couple of different times where I took a couple of different classes, but I never took like real karate. So I remember. I took a couple of little classes like at our local, like, oh, like at the local Y kind of in, in maybe in the same uh, vein, vein. As Daniel LaRusso did. I took some, I think Tai Chi classes at one point. And oh. it's a, yeah. Um, so I've done, I've taken like a couple of different types of martial arts classes, but it was never anything that I, that I really studied. How about you? Yeah. You know, after I saw the movie that we were, that we're going to discuss today, I kind of wanted to take karate lessons, but I never did. Yeah, I wanted to also. I mean, uh, yeah, every, everyone, it was so cool. Everyone yeah, came out. Everyone who saw this movie went out and wanted to and wanted to take karate lessons. Yeah, I, I definitely wanted to, but yeah, it just it never it just kind of never 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 really the never really the, happened. The too many other things to do. Too many other things, especially when you're that age. Uh, the best story I've heard about karate recently is I just found out that my neighbor, uh, the wife of the Emmy winner, she's a black belt in Taekwondo. Really? So yeah, it makes me wonder why I paid for a home security system because when you have a neighbor who's a black belt in Taekwondo, what do you need security for? You can just send a text <laughs> right you away. Also remember to behave yourself at dinner parties. Let's get right into the podcast. We have a, a big episode for everybody. Today, every episode's big, but today's episode is is super big. Um, just to give everybody the uh, the rundown of what it is that we do here. Every episode, we focus on a particular movie or television show that features a foreign national character living in the U.S. We are going to do a deep dive into the movie or television show, focusing on the specific foreign national character. We are going to use our immigration detective skills to figure out what the character's U.S. visa status may have been, what problems or issues the character may have had living in the U.S., and we are going to talk about a hypothetical consultation if the character came to us for advice. Normally... We imagine that all characters are living in a 2021 U.S. immigration world. However, every now and then, as is the case with today's episode, we have to go back to the time the character actually came to the U.S. to have a proper immigration discussion. So, Rod, those are the rules. Mm -hmm. As always, I just want to make sure that you're going to follow the rules. Sure will. Yeah. And, and today's a little bit of it. Like you said, today's a little bit of a departure. We, we have a little bit, a bit of a history lesson, actually. Yeah, uh, it's going to be uh, today. So going to be history. It's going to be comedy. It's going to be everything you want from us. So uh, today, the movie that we are going to be focusing on is the 1984 film, The Karate Kid. I really do love this movie. And um, Rod, why don't you bring everybody up to speed so they remember how much they love this movie too? All right. All right. So uh, Daniel Russo, 
is is played by Ralph Macchio. He's a 17-year-old from Newark, New Jersey. Uh, in the summer before his senior year of high school, his he and his mom, uh, or his his he and his mom moved to to California. His mother lands a job in Los Angeles, and the two move across the country. Uh, within about a day of moving to Los Angeles, uh, Daniel uh, goes to a beach party where he uh, is becomes intrigued by a high school girl named Allie. Uh, while he's flirting with her, uh, her ex boyfriend, who's a karate back, black belt named Johnny, shows up and and he and Ali get into a little bit of a, an altercation. Daniel tries to kind of diffuse their argument, but uh, Johnny ends up beating Daniel up, which becomes sort of a recurring <laughs> motif in the film. <laughs> uh, um, the first few months of Daniel's school year uh, basically just consist of him being bullied and assaulted by Johnny and his friends who all study karate together at the Cobra Kai Karate School, which is led by a militant karate teacher named John Kreese, who's an extraordinarily disturbed individual. Uh, Though he doesn't seem to form real friendships at all at the school or 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 with anybody his age, Ali does show some romantic interest in him, and um, he also forms a close bond with the apartment complex's Japanese maintenance person, uh, Mr. Miyagi, who is a man in his sixties, uh, played very memorably by by Pat Morita. So one night uh, after uh, the Halloween dance at school, Mr. Miyagi ends up saving Daniel's life. He was being assaulted by Johnny and his friends pretty brutally. Uh, Mr. Miyagi strikes a deal with Johnny's karate teacher, uh, Mr. Kreese. Uh, the deal is that Johnny and his friends will leave Daniel alone as long as Daniel competes in the upcoming karate tournament. Mr. Miyagi agrees to train Daniel, uh, and he does so with, with some very unconventional methods, which include Daniel having to do all sorts of maintenance tasks around, uh, on and around Mr. Miyagi's house, uh, waxing his cars, sanding the floors, etc. cetera. Uh, Daniel ends up surprising everyone at the karate tournament by making it to the final against Johnny. Uh, although Johnny sort of roughs Daniel up a little bit, Daniel ends up winning the match by using a crane technique, which was taught to him by Mr. Miyagi, to kick Johnny in the face and win the last point. Uh, Ali runs out and congratulates Daniel, and we close the film on a still of uh, a freeze frame of Mr. Miyagi smiling at the camera. This is a real underdog story, wouldn't you say so? No, it certainly is. Yeah. yeah, the the bullied kid, you know, coming out on top, gets the girl, gets the respect of the bully. Um, yeah, that's this, right. You're you're all right, Larusso. This is, is Johnny's yeah. last line in the movie. This is the kind of stuff that always happens in real life. The mm -hmm. nerd, the nerd gets the girl and the bully's respect. Always, always. It gives hope to all the kids out there. Gives hope, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this movie is 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 a, is a fine, uh, you know, blueprint for life. For sure. Um, <laughs> I did love this movie as a kid. How could you not? It was really a, a heartwarming movie, an entertaining movie, comedy, action. It had everything in it. Yeah. Uh, so here's some uh, interesting facts about the movie. I know you love these facts, Rod. Mm -hmm. uh, actors, including, listen to this: Sean Penn, Robert Downey Jr. Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estevez, Nicolas Cage, and Tom Cruise were all considered for the part of Daniel before Ralph Macchio was chosen. That is, that is, that is, that's everyone in the so, early eighties. That's it's a who's who. It's a who's who. Yeah, it's a who's I mean, everyone who's anyone was was considered for this movie, and I love that it went to unknown Ralph Macchio. Incredible, incredible. Uh, Pat Morita was initially rejected for the role of Mr. Miyagi due to his association with stand-up comedy. And a previous role, and his previous role is Arnold in the sitcom Happy Days. The funny thing is, is that Pat Morita ended up being nominated for an Academy Award 
and a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Mr. Miyagi. So I guess the casting people got it right. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's it's such a it was such it's such a weird thing to think about that. I mean, I used to watch Happy Days on right. occasion when I was a kid on Nick at Night, of course. And um I it, it to think back, I only vaguely remember Pat Morita as Arnold on the show, but to know that he was already famous as a stand-up comedian and on a comedy, you know, on a sitcom, and that he was considered not right for this role is amazing because it's it i mean it, whenever you hear pat Morita, you think mr miyagi, mr. And that's miyagi. It. i mean this he is the, he he embodied this character and he gave such life to this character and i read i think on on wikipedia that he wanted this role and that they were uh the studio was opposed to it and he got the role by doing an impression of his uncle Incredible. which i thought which i which i just i think it's kind of cute but also it's just this movie like it's it's one of those situations where this this no one else could possibly have played this character. It's yeah, just him. I, That's it. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know anybody who could have played this character. Yeah, he is this character perfectly. Right. Right. And so, and, uh, another character in this movie who was perfect, I think, was <laughs> Elizabeth Shue, who played Allie. But amazingly, Demi Moore was considered for Allie. The story is is that Elizabeth Shue was chosen based on a popular Burger King commercial that she had appeared in. So, have, and have you seen that commercial? I, I went ahead and I watched that. Commercial I still haven't doing, seen doing that research commercial, for this episode. but it, 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 it's worth your time. If you like Burger King commercials, it's pretty good. Just a little known fact about me in between my uh, senior year and freshman year of college, I worked at a Burger King. And one day we'll talk about that story another yeah, time. That's going to that's for a different episode. <laughs> but and, and amazing. They didn't make you watch this ad. They, uh, you would think they would. They taught me how to to do the ketchup on a burger in a circular manner, but they didn't teach me to do the Elizabeth that's, shoe. That's exciting. Uh, and this is, I mean, th this is, you know, listeners, this is news to me. I didn't know that Shy worked at a Burger King. He's been hiding this from me the whole time. Listen, so, we don't know everything about each other, not just yet, but we yeah. will. I'm as ecstatic uh, <laughs> as, as everybody else is right now. This is amazing. And the last fun fact I'm going to tell everybody is that the film spawned three sequels, a remake, and a television show little known show called Cobra Kai, which currently streams on Netflix. So let's get into Mr. Miyagi, who we've alluded to. And uh, Rod, you do such a great job at telling everybody about the characters. So give us what you got about the legend, Mr. Miyagi. All right. So Mr. Miyagi was born in Okinawa, Japan in 1925. Uh, as a teenager, he fell in love with a girl who's, who his best friend was betrothed to. Uh, rather than fighting a death match with his best friend over the girl, Mr. Miyagi fled to the United States. Uh, the story goes that Mr. Miyagi moved to Hawaii sometime around the age of 18 to work in the cane fields. Uh, thereafter, he moved to Southern California to attend university. Sometime in the early 1940s, Mr. Miyagi was married. After his marriage, he was either drafted into or joined the U.S. military. We're not 100% sure exactly, but he did fight in Europe during the Second World War with a U.S. military regiment comprised mainly of American soldiers of Japanese ancestry. Uh, Mr. Miyagi was a decorated American war hero. While away at war, his wife died in childbirth at a Japanese internment camp in California. Uh, Mr. Miyagi never remarried and never had any children. When we meet Mr. Miyagi in the 1980s, he's a maintenance man at Daniel's apartment complex. He's a solitary man, and in his free time, he does uh, landscaping, home improvement, uh, restoring classic American cars, and cultivating bonsai trees. He is a karate expert, obviously, uh, having learned from his father in Okinawa. He 
detests violence and preaches that karate is for defense only. Uh, he claims in the movie to have never taught karate before and uses, as we mentioned before, some very non-traditional methods to train Daniel. He's portrayed as, as you know, gentle and wise, and he serves as a, as a father figure to Daniel uh, throughout the course of the film. I think Mr. Miyagi definitely put bonsai trees on the map. I think my first uh, experiences and uh, coming my first, to... Yeah, absolutely. My first right? experience with a bonsai tree was definitely watching this film, yeah. Yeah, good yeah. for bonsai that- Good for bonsai and now, trees. Now, when I whenever I go to a botanical garden, uh, you know, I see them there, and and I understand them because um, I know that uh, I learned because of what I learned from Mr. Miyagi. Yeah, one of the winners of this movie, definitely bonsai trees. And I, uh, think, you know, <laughs> the, the the early information that I got about any Eastern philosophy, you know what I mean, came Mr. from Miyagi. Cons- concepts of balance, all that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, Mr. What, Miyagi taught us taught us a lot of foundational concepts early in life, I think. What a great father figure. So Mr. Miyagi, uh, the story goes that he immigrated to the U.S. as a teenager in the 1940s, all right? Mm-hmm. So to do this, he would have needed some kind of U.S. visa status because he is from Okinawa, so he's a Japanese national. To properly have an immigration discussion about Mr. Miyagi, we're going to have to go back and talk about the 19th and early 20th centuries and discuss how somebody in Mr. Miyagi's situation could have, if at all possible, legally immigrated to the U.S. Uh, we will also you know, have to talk about the history of Japanese immigration into the U.S. in general. So, Rod, as a man of history and someone mm-hmm. who loves to educate the masses, maybe you'd like to tell us all a little bit about Japanese immigration into the U.S. starting in the 19th uh, and 20th centuries? I sure can. I'd be happy to. So Japanese nationals started leaving for the U.S., sort of coming to the United States in the 1860s for work opportunities and to provide better futures for their children. Uh, The first generation of Japanese immigrants had to overcome uh, a hostile reception, um, very harsh working conditions, uh, repeated legislative attacks on their very presence and very ability to come to and remain in the United States. Um, some of the earliest Japanese immigration to the U.S. was in fact uh, illegal, or we would refer to it as undocumented. Beginning in the 1880s, legal barriers to immigration uh, began to drop. Um, but between 1886 and 1911, uh, more than 400,000 Japanese nationals uh, left for the U.S. or U.S. controlled lands. Um, by 1920, Japanese immigrant farmers controlled more than 450,000 acres of land in California. So they were starting to become a, a, a presence in the United States. I mean, the immigration was, was significant. The Immigration Act of 1924 was then passed by the U.S. Congress and signed into law. It imposed severe restrictions on any immigration from any non-Western European country and effectively ended Japanese and in general Asian immigration in general. Specifically, the act set a total immigration quota of 165,000 for countries outside the Western Hemisphere and barred immigrants from Asia, including Japan. The act was basically just an attempt to, quote unquote, preserve the idea of U.S. homogeneity by by excluding non-white people from the United States. Although the act faced little opposition in Congress, it was also supported by groups such as the KKK and other uh, nationalist organizations. Yeah, this is, you know, thank you, Rod, for that history lesson. It's very interesting. Um, the Japanese people, they came to the United States for some of the same exact reasons why people today come to the United States for work, better, you know, work opportunities and opportunities for their children. I think that that's a, a 
tradition and that's um, a reality that still exists. It's very interesting. No matter what country people are from, they're all looking for the same, you know, opportunities. And, you know, this was, uh, uh, I think, starting in 1924. It's a sad period of time for mm. the United States. Um, not only did the act stop Asians from entering the U.S., but like you said, Rod, it stopped immigrants from, quote unquote, the undesirable parts of Europe, uh, mm -hmm. including Eastern Europe and Southern Europe as well. Uh, it affected more than just Asian people. It affected Jews. It affected Italians, Greeks, Spaniards, Portuguese, and many other people. So uh, it was basically, you know, a complete stop on legal immigration into the U.S. Um, besides the people that Congress wanted to call, you know, the desirable people. Mm -hmm. So um, and Rod, so how long did this Immigration Act of 1924 last? How long was it the law of the land? So this law was was the law of the land until the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952 was passed. There was a subsequent Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, uh, the latter of which actually remains the basis for modern day uh, immigration law in the United States. So from approximately 1924 until 1952, we went through this very dark, uh, intolerant phase of U.S. immigration, where basically just the doors were closed to that, a significant portion of the world. That's almost 30 years that, you know, the doors were closed. And um, Rod, can you tell us what some of the key provisions of the uh, 1952 Act and then the 1965 Act were? Because they replaced the 1924 Act. Yeah. So the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952 uh, abolished any racial restrictions found in U.S. immigration policy. Some of those dated all the way back to the 1790s, since the very founding of the country. The act also did retain a quota system for certain nationalities and regions, though. That's that 52 Act. The Immigration and Nationality Act of 65, the subsequent one, took things a little bit further by including a provision stating specifically that, quote unquote, no person shall receive any preference or priority or be discriminated against in the issuance of an immigrant visa because of the person's race, sex, nationality, place of birth, or place of residence. And, you know, that that sentiment right there sounds very much like America to you and me, it's, I think, Sean. It sounds like America on paper, very progressive. Yeah. In actuality, sometimes it doesn't play out like that. Right. But it took until 1965 even to get that onto paper. Right. And then, you know, the 1965 Act also abolished the national origins formula from uh, from the 1920s. Right. And I believe, you know, the the 1965 Act, it, it eliminated the de facto discrimination against Southern and Eastern Europeans. So um, it opened up immigration to the groups that were excluded for a really long time. Um, mm -hmm. Importantly, we should all remember that the 1965 Act did not directly grant a pathway for citizenship to those who were illegally in the United States uh, during uh, previous time periods. So, okay, right. now we know the history of Japanese immigration in the U.S. We didn't cover everything, but I think we hit the, the most important points. Um, we know a little bit about the regulations governing immigration during the time period of when Mr. Miyagi supposedly came to the U.S., so let's talk about that. Let's talk about how Mr. Miyagi in real life could have entered the U.S. knowing what we know now due to your mm -hmm. excellent history lesson. Right. Okay. So I think my biggest takeaway here, and we've said this before, is that we should be consultants for all directors and all filmmakers in Hollywood <laughs> who want <laughs> to yeah. who want who want to film a movie that deals with a foreign national character. Just come to us because mm -hmm. we would have told you that it was extremely implausible, if not completely impossible, 
that the character of Mr. Miyagi could have come to the United States in the 1940s and lived the life that he says he lived and was supposedly living that we see in the film. So, number one. Uh, first, we're told that Mr. Miyagi immigrated to the U.S. in the early 1940s, around the age of 18. Considering he was born in 1925, that would have uh, made him 18 in 1943. So that would have been almost impossible because Japanese immigration was illegal between 1924 and 1952. Uh, further, uh, the U.S. went to war in, the, in 1941. There was a little war called World War II. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would have made it even more implausible that he made it made it to the U.S. in the early 1940s. Don't you think right. so, Rod? Uh, it, it, yeah, impossible. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And um, another point, I think you were talking about this with me. What was that other point that you were saying? So in the movie, we're, we're told that Mr. Miyagi served in a U.S. Mil- in, in the U.S. military during world during the war in Europe. This wouldn't have been possible because Japanese-born people were not allowed to serve in the U.S. military during the Second World War. And we're told also, we learned that he was in a famous uh, unit comprised of American-born Japanese volunteers known as the Nisei. Now, Miyagi's not American-born, right? Uh, so he wouldn't have been eligible for the Nisei, nor could he have been in the military to begin with. So, you know, unfortunately, it, it's great for the story, but it doesn't, right. doesn't work out. It doesn't pan out in real life. He could not have been part of the Nisei or indeed in the army at all. Yeah, you know, this is an interesting situation. Um, we've done a number of Hasta La Visa Baby episodes so far. Anybody out there who hasn't listened to all of them, you're doing a disservice to yourself. Go back and listen to all of them. Uh, <laughs> it's it's Each episode is 40 to 45 minutes that just can't be replicated. It'll but, cha- each one will change your life in its own way. Yeah. Yes, it's changed my life. So the point is, is that in every episode, we have found a way, as crazy as some of these ways may have been, for our characters to have been in the United States during the movies. I mean, we even found a way for Dr. Evil from Austin mm-hmm. Powers to be in the United States. We yep. can't really find a way with what we see in the movie for Mr. Miyagi to have been legally in the United States. So. Agreed. We hate to be the bearers of bad news, but again, Hollywood, we could have fixed this for you. We were both young children, but you could have come to us and we could have talked to you about how you could have worked Mr. Miyagi (laughs) into the movie. I would probably have had him born a little earlier and have immigrated to the United States during a legal period of time. Right. So then it just, just, just to very, so our thinking then, Shai, is that if the timeline in the story is true and he did come in around 1943, that he probably came in. Illegally, he was undocumented. Uh, yeah, under false pretenses. Maybe he pretended to be, you know, from Germany. <laughs> One of those, okay. I don't yeah. know, but uh, who be. knows? Yeah. Could be. Or, 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 you know, maybe was, maybe, you know, in, uh, what he we call just, an iwi, entry right. without inspection, he snuck right. on, you know, got on a boat that just yeah. dropped him off somewhere on the coast and made his way in. I mean, you know, it's very difficult to know, but but um, yeah, he he could not have, there was, there was no, the important thing I think to, to really uh, land on here is that there was no legal way for him to come to the United States at that time, or indeed more or less any Asian person at that time. Yep, that's just the, the, the truth. And let's talk a little bit more about history. We wanna talk about the history of The Karate Kid, the sequels that it spawned, and this hit Cobra Kai Netflix show that uh, you know is out right now that all the kids are talking about. Sure. So Rod, here's my hot take. My hot take is that The Karate Kid is just another situation where one movie would have been enough. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think that you and I both have some 
appreciation for the Karate Kid 2. So just yes. to give everybody a, 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 a summary, the Karate Kid 2, they go to Okinawa. Uh, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel go to Okinawa because Mr. Miyagi's father is very sick. Um, and then Daniel, you know, he gets involved with another bully and he gets yeah. involved in a death match that he, he survives. He doesn't kill his opponent, but his opponent would have killed him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My, yeah. my question, Rod, my question to you is that let's say Daniel lost the death match. Uh, how would Mr. Miyagi explain to his mother that, oh, by the way, your son, who I was overseeing, died because of a death match? Yeah. Because of, because of uh, yeah because of this this weird honor killing um interesting yeah I, I've never really thought about that aspect of it what is what would Miyagi's I mean even still Daniel was pretty eminent for people who've seen Karate Kid Daniel's pretty battered by the end of that he's going to come home with a couple of scars yeah probably still some black and blues and um, if anyone you know who has watched the original movie in anticipation of this episode you know I mean Daniel's mother is very concerned about. Daniel coming home with a black eye and bruises and having gotten in fights. So having him having him come home after being nearly beaten to death in Okinawa, Mr. Miyagi would have had a lot to explain. Yeah. Um, not, I, again, not, I, I do. I have a soft spot in my heart for Karate Kid Part Two. It was um, fun. Yeah. It's got a lot of Peter Cetera in it, which is not, you know, not my favorite singer. But uh, <laughs> for, for those for those Chicago fans out there. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, Karate Kid Part Two is basically just Karate Kid One again. It's in, the in, same Okinawa. Sort of recycled. Yeah. in Okinawa, yeah, um, so, Okinawa. I loved it though, and yeah, it was it was good when I was young, and it so was I good. didn't have a soft spot. Yeah, but then I we never, get it. I never saw Part Three. Yeah, okay, so then we get into the craziness, okay? Because things just get absurd from here. Karate Kid Three uh, is there's an insane plot about John Kreese, who's the teacher from Cobra Kai. And he wants revenge on Mr. Miyagi and Daniel because Daniel beat Johnny after the first movie. So naturally, you know, a karate teacher wants revenge sure. on a 17-year-old. So so Chris gets one of his uh, former Vietnam War buddies, a sociopath with a ponytail named Terry Silver, who becomes a billionaire to yeah. help to help get revenge on a 17-year-old and uh, his 65-year-old uh, mentor. So it's, it, that's it's all a, you need to know. That's all you need like to know. Such, it sounds like a mess. I have to say, just based on your description, I do kind of want to see it now. Though. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> then, then we have um, a movie that I didn't see called The Next Karate Kid. And um, this starred Hilary Swank as a new pupil for Mr. Miyagi. And apparently it takes place in Boston. So this one I did see. Oh. Probably. I, I, I did see. I don't remember it, unfortunately, but I did see it. I think I saw it because it took place in Boston. And Because up you're in a Boston, man, a man from I'm Massachusetts, a, obligated. I'm from Massachusetts, yeah. I grew up in, in the Boston suburbs. <laughs> so so I would have seen this just because it took place there. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're required to whenever, whenever a movie takes place in or around uh, the Boston area. If you grew up in Massachusetts, you have to watch the movie. Of course. Um, but yeah, I, I did see it, but I, I really can't say I remember anything about it. Um, yeah, nor, that, nor the 2010 remake, uh, right? Starring starring uh, Jaden Smith and Jackie Chan. Um, yeah, I, not, I by then I go just, near that. Yeah, by then I had logged off completely, and I was like, I'm just you know, if, no. I, if I if I need to revisit this, I'll watch the original film. I don't need to see the right, right. The compromised second, third, and fourth drafts or the remake. And yeah. then things things got really interesting because in 2018. <laughs> This uh, television show called Cobra Kai came out on a little channel called YouTube Red. Uh, the first two seasons were on YouTube Red, and then um, Netflix picked it up for the third season. And uh, the show is uh, has gained a cult following. Basically, it's, you know, what, 30, 40 years later, 30 years later, 35 years later, we've got Daniel and Johnny as, as middle-aged men. And um, 
people love this show. I can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think so. I, I, I'll say, I'll say this. I, I liked episode. I liked season one. Okay, I I'm there. Pretty, I thought it was pretty well done. I liked, I liked how they did this. You know, Johnny. Johnny was sympathetic and Daniel was a little less so, you know, where they kind of flipped those two characters and they gave us some interesting, they did a lot, they played a lot on them, you know, and, yeah. and they gave us, they gave us a lot. There was a, there was one great scene. I remember where they have a drink together and they, they're sitting at a bar together having a drink and they actually kind of like, they, they, they sort of come to understand each other. And I was like, this show is starting to get really good. And then in the next scene, they hate each other again. And I started to think to myself, I don't know, are they losing me with this? And then season two came along and um, oh, yeah. it just got weirder and weirder. And the final episode of season two, when they had the huge brawl in the school. Um, yeah. So in which seemingly every student took place. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean what, what what gets me about this show is that there's just children fighting with each other and beating <laughs> beating the crap at each other everywhere in the mall, everywhere in the yeah. woods, in school. Yep. There doesn't seem to be any adult intervention. And to make things worse, you got Johnny and Daniel, who are two men in their fifties, and they're just you know encouraging all of this. And right. and Mr. Miyagi would have never encouraged this. Yes, that yeah, and and yeah, Mr. Miyagi would would have been. I think when we were talking, you were you were saying Mr. Miyagi would have been appalled, appalled that Daniel to, was was to see what Daniel was doing. What is yeah. he doing? So I don't know. I just this, the children beating each other up. Daniel has become so annoying. I mean, what about the original movies would make you think that this guy would be a successful car dealership guy? Why? Because he he whacks Mr. Miyagi's cars, so now he knows a thing or two about opening car dealerships. <laughs> this guy's a this guy's a clown. I I can't. <laughs> I I'm definitely Team Johnny, even though Johnny's pretty much uh, didn't turn out so so great himself. Kind of yeah, a. I, I haven't. I think. I think things start to turn a little in season three. I. I and I, I haven't I, finished I, season three. I watched the first couple of episodes. Um, yeah. I know that we get. We get. Crease comes back. I mean, Ugh. spoiler alert. Um, but you know, there's. Yeah. Um, you know, there's. There's. There, there's some more development in in season three. I think to come that that we haven't seen yet. Uh, yeah. Whether or not. Whether or not we watch it. But I dropped there, out. There's. there's, there's I dropped a little out. More to come. Yeah. I dropped out after season two. Uh, listeners out there, I'm with you. If you think that our take is wrong, let us know. Please, yeah, please email do, us. Yeah. yeah, we'd love to have a, a conversation with you about Cobra Kai. Maybe you know it's not for our generation. I don't know, but yeah, um, old, old people like you and me, shine. Old people like us. Well, you know what old people like us do, Rod? We talk about history. That's so, right. <laughs> so, so that's my smooth transition into our next sec session. Of the podcast and that is right. where so usually rod as you know because you pay very close attention to the way the format goes yes we do a, a hypothetical consultation with our character of focus mm -hmm. however you know this episode we've already come to the the realization that mr miyagi couldn't have legally been in the united states so there wouldn't be much to talk to him about in a consultation so we decided that this is an important opportunity given the platform that we have to dedicate this time to a topic of, of very great importance to both Mr. Miyagi and in real life, all the Japanese Americans and, and Japanese uh, citizens in America during World War II. And that was the uh, internment camps that were set up by the U.S. government for people of Japanese descent on U.S. soil. Um, so in the movie, we learn that Mr. Miyagi's wife was living in a Japanese internment camp in California known as Manzanar. I think we also 
hear that Mr. Miyagi was living there too. And, and we learned that unfortunately, Mr. Miyagi's wife died in childbirth in the camp while Mr. Miyagi was at war in Europe. So this is really important. And Rod, you're doing a great job with the history lessons. Can you tell us a little bit about Japanese internment camps during World War II? Uh, sure. Uh, so, so once the U.S. became involved in, in the war with Japan, the American government became uh, distrustful of uh, even native-born Japanese people uh, and you know, either Japanese-born or American-born in, uh, individuals of Japanese descent. Uh, so in 1942, President Roosevelt an, uh, issued an executive order uh, where it became the policy that people of Japanese descent again, including U.S. citizens, be incarcerated in isolated camps. Uh, the executive order forcibly removed Americans of Japanese ancestry from their homes into these camps, and uh, about 120,000 people, uh, over two-thirds of whom were actually U.S. citizen, you know, U.S.-born American citizens, uh, were displaced from their normal lives and, and put into these camps. Yeah, this is a pretty incredible. Uh, coming from, you know, a, a quote-unquote progressive uh, government, uh, that mm -hmm. they did this to a, a nationality just because they were different than everybody else. Yep. Um, and Rod, what kind of places were these internment camps? I mean, so yeah, yeah. So they they were they were generally located in remote areas, and they were often reconfigured fairgrounds or racetracks or livestock facilities, deserts, plains, swamps. The, these weren't places that were hospitable to human habitation. They were, you know, again, often remote, generally in in hot. Uh, uncomfortable areas. Uh, the camps were in seven states, including Arkansas, Arizona, California, Colorado, Idaho, Utah, and Wyoming. Yeah, uh, pretty incredible. The more that you talk about it, the more incredible it really becomes to hear this. Um, and, and do we have any kind of information of what life for the intern people was like at these camps? <clears throat> so in in the Manzanar camp in California, uh, where 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 Mr. Miyagi's wife uh, was was living, uh, the 500-acre housing section was surrounded by barbed wire and guard towers. Uh, the camp was patrolled by military police. The housing blocks were crowded. There was little to no privacy. Um, you know, most of the interred people weren't accustomed. I mean, th these were, you know, to my mind, these are prison conditions. Uh, and it sounds you know, like it to me. Barbed wire, prison guards. Yeah. Um, you know, these people had been free individuals and wouldn't have been accustomed to these situations, just rounded up and forced into camps like this. Um, you know, especially those coming from, you know, affluent modern city life like Los Angeles, San Francisco. Um, you know, they would have been living lives probably not unlike yours and mine today. Each camp, you know, basically uh, functioned as uh, like its own town. Um, they had schools, post offices, uh, work facilities, farmland for, for food and livestock. But, um, you know, again, it, it, you know, these individuals were confined to these camps, you know, uh, and were, were held uh, against their will yeah, by, there, by the authorities. There really is no making light of these kinds of things. Uh, imagine, Rod, mm -hmm. today just being told because of, you know, where you come from or your ethnicity or your nationality that you can't participate in normal American life and you had to be taken to a camp. And, and put in, in these conditions, it's, it's just completely, it's completely wrong. It's, it's a shame. And it's uh, something that I think we wanted to talk about because people, uh, I don't think in school, we learn enough about, about the situation. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, I mean, it's like you said, it's, it's really unconscionable 
And um, I remember I learned about this in high school for the very first time. Uh, I was in high school when I first learned about this and I was appalled learning about this. I mean, this is what we were fighting against in Europe. And so to find that that we were doing, I mean, not the same thing, but we were doing anything even remotely similar was uh, was a shock. You know, I mean, we were we were fighting abroad, protecting the rights of free people to live freely uh, and then rounding up innocent individuals and, and and. and imprisoning them here. The another amazing part about all this is that you know we were fighting World War II against Germany, against Italy. Germans weren't rounded up. Italians nope. weren't rounded up. Just Japanese people were rounded up. It's it's right. really interesting. Um, not one Japanese person in the United States during the history or the entire period of World War II was ever found to have collaborated against the United States. So, um, how did this end, Rod? Um, this this sad period in American history. Well. You know, it wasn't, you know, this, it, it, people did fight against this. I mean, you know, people at the time were saying this is wrong. And, uh, and in 1942, a 23 year old Japanese American named Fred Korematsu was arrested for refusing to relocate to a camp. Uh, his case made it to the Supreme Court where he argued that the executive order violated the Fifth Amendment. And, um, you know, sadly, the Supreme Court, uh, court ruled against Korematsu. Yeah. Um, you know, you know we're, World War II, you know, didn't end until 1945, and it wasn't until, you know, after World War II that the uh, the camps came to an end. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there was a Supreme Court decision in 45 that ruled unanimously that the, the War Relocation Authority had no authority to subject citizens to such treatment. Um, the last internment camp closed in 1946, um, but it's crazy that an actual executive order Establishing the camp's uh, closure was, uh, I'm sorry, an executive order was issued in 1976 that um, repealed the order that established the camp. So it took, you yeah. know, it, technically over 30 years for the camps right. to be to officially closed. To be yeah, to, for for that authority to be a formal to be formally removed from the from the military. Right, right, um, and and then as far as you know. Justice. I don't know how you can give justice to the people who were subjected to this, but in 1988, Congress issued a, a formal apology and passed uh, an act awarding $20,000 to each of the over 80,000 Japanese Americans who, you know, were were involved in those internment camps. So, yeah, I mean, 46 years later, right? It, uh, it, it, it's 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 pretty shocking. That yeah, it, it took that long. A, a when, sad. A sad period in American history. Um, Definitely, you know, no country is perfect. And uh, hopefully, you know, the United States can learn from this and and something like this never has to happen again. But, you know, we decided to talk about this because Mr. Miyagi in the movie uh, has a direct connection to these circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I think our platform warranted a very um, intimate discussion about about these injustices. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I think, um, you know, you know, if you look at, you know, historically, you know, we, um, these, these camps, you know, some of the, there, there are some other, uh, you know, famous people who, who have, who have come to, you know, prominence, um, you know, the, a major one being George Takei, who's very open about, uh, his, his life in internment. Uh, he played Sulu in the Star Trek series. Sure. Um, and then, um, just reaching back to a previously, a previous episode, uh, in, in Die Hard, 
uh, right. the character, the character of Takagi, who was the CEO of the of the Nakatomi Corporation, uh, what had been interned in Mansonar. So, right. you know, in in the in exactly the same camp actually that Miyagi's family was. So, right. you know, this it's it's great. I mean, it's it's great that this this history is getting uh, some recognition and people are speaking about it and 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 bringing it to the fore. Uh, both through the arts and through their personal stories. But I think, you know, it's it's a story, you know, I was in high school by the time I heard about this and I knew plenty about World War II up and before but high not school. This. And not this. And this was, right. you know, this, that got sprung on me a little bit later in life came as a, as a pretty serious shock because right. um, this was not what we were supposed to have been doing in the Second World War. Yeah, and, and definitely, you yeah, know, and, you know, we love this movie, uh, despite the fact that on the outskirts, it deals with a lot of serious matters. At the end of the day, this is a great movie, a coming of age movie, uh, a movie of, of triumph, of the under, underdog winning. So let's talk, t- talk about some uh, conclusions that we have from the movie, shall we? <laughs> sure. Okay. So uh, Daniel LaRusso, is he actually as innocent as we initially thought he was in the movie? <laughs> well, it, 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 it's a very it's a very valid question. I mean, you know, he's certainly it's a fish out of water kind of a story. Um, but he brings a lot of trouble onto himself, doesn't he? Uh, I think. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's not cool that he got bullied, right? But he no. kind of stoked the fire. You know, he w- he just kept poking the bear. He wouldn't stop. Yep. Like absolutely. I-, I think Johnny and the kids might have been done with him, but he kept instigating and he kept asking for more trouble. Um, yep. If, there's a there's a YouTube series called The Crimes and Immoralities of Daniel LaRusso, and it's pretty funny. So if you want to laugh about Daniel LaRusso <laughs> and, and the real villain of The Karate Kid, check out uh, The Crime and Immoralities of Daniel LaRusso. Another takeaway that I have, and we have to talk about this, is in what world would a popular high school cheerleader like Ali ever, ever have been into Daniel? Okay, let, let me break it down for you, okay? <laughs> uh, he's a wimp. <laughs> he doesn't drive. He's constantly getting beat up. He isn't even nice to Allie. He's really mean to her. And and further, this is the part that kills me. The first time that Daniel sees Allie on the beach, by the way, she's in her bathing suit, laying out with her friends. He's playing soccer. He immediately stops playing soccer. He stops in front of her and he stares at her awkwardly, like for 30 seconds without saying a word. And you pointed this out whenever you watch this for this episode, it, you pointed that out to me. It, I, I watched it and, and it really is creepy. It and, really and, comes off as it's it's really bad. And Rod, <laughs> if there's one thing that I know, it's that girls what, in that ba- it's that high school girls in bathing suits on the beach, they don't like it when some guy just stops and stares at them. Now, no. I'm not saying why I know that or how I know that. I'm just saying I know that. <clears throat> you know, and we can I, I, leave I, it at I, that. We can leave it at that, and, and you know, and, and they should not, as they should not. Uh, yeah. I agree. Yeah, Ali wouldn't um, have been into Daniel. No yeah. way. I, I, I do. I, I will say this one thing, and that there, there is a line in the movie where Daniel actually says to Ali, uh, "Why are you interested in me?" or something like that. Why do you like me? And she said, "I thought you'd be different." And just to, to, to kind of be, uh, you know, maybe a little fair to Daniel and to Ali both, um, you know, he is different from what she would have been used to perhaps, you know, maybe st- just stereotypically in Southern California. You know, she she was definitely upper middle class or upper class. She probably traveled in very specific circles. And Daniel was, um, you know, very different from 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 those circles. So I can, I can see where maybe, what's that? New and exciting. 
new and exciting. So I can see where maybe there'd be some interest, perhaps. But uh, agreed. I think all your points are still valid. And uh, he, yeah, he wasn't very nice to her, and he was a creep from the beginning. So yeah, yes, yeah. staring at girls in bathing suits. Anyway, moving on, moving on. Uh, this is a question for you, Rod. Uh, sure. Miss, Mr. Miyagi, would he have been an amazing drinking buddy? <laughs> so, in the, in that one scene where uh, where Daniel comes in and finds him, Mr. Maggie finds Mr. Maggie drunk. Um, I got to say between, you know, he really packs down, he really packs away the scotch, uh, singing the Japanese blues. I find that he might be a little, I think he'd be a little emotional for my taste, but yeah, you don't, you don't really want to end up with somebody who's going to be crying at the end of the night. So I think I'd probably try to uh, prevail upon Mr. Maggie to dial it back a little bit. Let's not have that much. Let's go a little slow. Let's have some water between drinks. (laughs) Sure. uh, I think on the whole, I think he'd probably be a pretty fun drinking buddy. He, he looked like he he looked like yeah. he, he looked like he he brought the party. <laughs> I I agree, definitely agree. Um, the, the the leader of Cobra Kai, John Kreese. This guy was this guy was completely insane. He was a maniac. Yeah. My my question for you is that you know he was teaching kids, so the kids had to be signed up by their parents. Uh, how did the parents of these students send their children to learn karate with this this complete? psychopath i mean did he yeah, like a very very disturbed man yeah. yeah did he put on a front when the parents came around i, I don't it, get it, it. so I, I would assume that um that the parents just didn't know what was happening at this school which i it it would have to be um because i can't imagine that any parents would want their children to be in an environment like this and it's one of these things that you you wonder as an adult you're like who signed their kid up to <laughs> go this guy to this, this yeah, guy to this guy to go take lessons from this guy yeah, it just doesn't make any sense at all um rod mr miyagi a very wise man he had a lot of uh great advice were there any quotes in particular that you loved from him um let me let me tell you my quote first sure. um yeah there was a scene where Mr. Miyagi was trying to catch a fly with chopsticks. And uh, my favorite quote from the movie, which is just perfect for life, is man who catches fly with chopsticks accomplishes anything. Yeah. yeah. True words have never been spoken. True words have never been spoken. I think my favorite Miyagi quote, and and I, I got it. You know, I realized it when I was watching, rewatching the movie for this episode is, is when Mr. Miyagi is making Daniel, uh wash and wax his cars daniel asks hey where are these cars from and Miyagi turns around and screams detroit i love that guy i I don't know why it just you know made me burst out loud mr miyagi was funny when he needed to be he was tough when he needed to be he was sympathetic when he needed to be he he should have had children what a guy yeah he was yeah he was great great uh, i've been making a lot of fun of daniel larusso but i have to give him credit for one thing uh he was a dork. His outfits were pretty bad. But did you see his sneaker game? I mean, uh, yeah, those Nikes. Some of those 1980s low top Nikes, as the kids say, I don't say this, but the kids say fire. Oh, they say yeah, fire. That's what they say yeah. fire. I went to a sneaker store a few months ago. I tried on a pair of sneakers and the, the you know, 19 year old uh, worker, she said, those are fire. I said, what? And um, wow. I, yeah, fire. So, all right. Can, well, there we go. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, no, he, uh, that, yeah, he was. He's, he's he's quite the fashionable fashionable guy. And I did want to bring up one 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 final point, Shy, which I know is is fascinating. Would be fascinating to you, is that I was watching the movie very closely because I didn't want to miss a thing. Uh, Never. And I did. I, I noticed when Daniel goes to Ali's house to pick her up for the date, and she comes out the front door. 
on the right side of the screen, you can see there is a mezuzah hanging, stuck on the wall by the front door. Okay, so, so I so love I, I love that I, you noticed this, Rod. I noticed this and I thought, wow, you know, and and for the, you know, anyone who doesn't know what a mezuzah is, a mezuzah is a is a, basically a small sort of piece of ornament ornamentation that that uh, is hung up and by the door of a Jewish home. It has a small piece of the Torah in it, and it's uh, it's meant. Uh, it's a blessing over the house. Yeah, a blessing over the house. Yeah, exactly. Right, and um, Rod, I should have been the one to catch this, but you are definitely <laughs> the honorary Jew of this podcast. Um, thank you for catching it. Uh, of course. I don't understand why there was uh, a mezuzah on Ali's door. Uh, I see three reasons why. Number one, okay, uh, her family was Jewish. I don't think so. Number two, they bought the house from somebody who was Jewish and they just kept it there. Awesome. Or, or number three, every nice house in California at this time was owned by Jews and uh, the directors just forgot to take it down. So I'm thinking number three. So, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that the the house that they borrowed uh, to be Ali's house, right, it would have been somebody's house living in the, in the L.A. suburbs and Encino or wherever. Um, that house was probably owned by a Jewish family, had the mezuzah on the wall, and the production people just didn't bother to take it down or, or move it at all or anything like that. But, you know, a fun great, little detail. Great and, catch, Rod. Great yeah, catch. A fun detail to, to add some interesting questions. To <laughs> so much education in this episode. It's great um, So, yeah, that's the Karate Kid. That's Mr. Miyagi. Uh, this was uh, a fun episode, an interesting episode. I think it was an important episode. We talked. Uh, we made you laugh. We made you cry. We mm. made you, th you know, think about things. Things. And uh, that's all we can hope to accomplish on the Hasta La Visa Baby podcast. That's yeah, that's what we strive for month yeah. after month. Um, so if you have not done so already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and, and give us a rating. Uh, we're on all the major uh, streaming platforms, and this is a recurring joke, but Rod really loves to rattle off what those streaming platforms are. And he comes up with a clever way of saying it every time. So, Rod, just do your thing. Where, sure, where, yeah. where, where can you find us? We're uh, on Apple, Spotify, <sighs> Stitcher, Google Play, Amazon, and et cetera. Yeah. Uh, TuneIn, I think, is one of those et ceteras. Oh, is it? Is yeah. TuneIn? Yeah. 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 Uh, Pocket uh, Casts as well. We're, yeah. We're, we're, everywhere. Everywhere you get your podcasts, yeah. you'll, you'll find us. Soon we'll be in outer space, considering Virgin Atlantic just made a, uh, a voyage to outer space. There we go. But when, um, when they launch their podcast service, we'll be on it. We will be on it. Um, we would love to hear from you. We have an email address, and that email address is... Is hasta la visa, H-A-S-T-A-L-A-V-I-S-A at gibney, G-I-B-N-E-Y dot com. Yeah, we love to hear from you. We did a mailbag episode last month where we answered your questions that came directly to that mail inbox. So shoot us an email and we're going to answer your questions. Next time we talk, which is going to be in August, we're going to do a television show. We're going to do a show called That 70s Show, and it featured a foreign exchange student named Fez who was uh, going to school somewhere in Wisconsin. We don't know exactly where he's from, but we'll get into all of that. We will figure all of that out. We figure it all out. That's what we do. Yep. So I had a great time with this episode. A big fan of Mr. Miyagi. Pour one out for Mr. Miyagi. He's not with us anymore, but he was a, a great character. He so was. until next time, everybody. Hasta la vista, baby. Hasta la vista, baby.